In this episode, I host a dialogue between Stephen Snyder, meditation teacher and author of several books, including Buddha's Heart and his new release, Trust in Awakening, and Mark Minenberg, Zen master, Dharma heir to Bernie Glassman, and founder CEO of Environ Energy. Stephen and Mark recount how they met and why they decided to become each other's teacher. Stephen teaching Mark heart meditation methods, while Mark completed Stephen's Zen koan training. Stephen and Mark pull back the curtain to give us an intimate view into their mutual teaching relationship, including accounts of mind-to-mind transmission, powerful spiritual epiphanies, and a blossoming friendship. Stephen also announces his new book, Trust in Awakening, a reworking with commentary of the classic Tang Dynasty Chan poem of awakening, the Jin Jin Ming, and offers a teaching and commentary on two of the stanzas from the book. Stephen and Mark also discuss their rigorous new program for training the next generation of teachers, their plans to open a residential retreat center, and reflect on the Dharma politics of traditionalists versus innovators. So without further ado, Stephen Snyder and Mark Minenberg. Stephen Snyder and Mark Minenberg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here, Steve. Thank you so much, Steve, for having us. Well, I'm so delighted to be talking with both of you today. And uh, we, well, we've got a lot of things to talk about, actually. And I think this is going to be a very interesting dialogue. We'll, of course, touch on Stephen's new book, Trust in Awakening. I'd like to also touch on the new retreat center, Buddhist Heart Meditation Center, and uh, many other things. But first of all, I thought we might start with how the two of you met. Um, and perhaps we could talk a bit about the significance of Stephen having recently completed the first ceremony of Zen Dharma transmission in the Glassman Roshi lineage. So perhaps we could start there. Sure. Uh, Mark, you want to start to uh, start sure. the introduction story? Yeah, it's probably I think I uh, I think I started it actually without realizing. Uh, so I, you know, I practiced many decades in the Zen tradition and uh, have worked in other traditions as well and, and other, you know, healing modalities and, and the like. Um, but I, I felt like I really wanted to delve much more deeply into the heart practices. And so when I was looking around for, you know, who would be a, a good teacher in that area, I came across Stephen's books, of course, and uh, was right away uh, actually blown away by the teaching. And uh, and so I did, but I wanted to see him live and so i tuned into one of your uh viking guru uh interviews and about halfway through i just said this i've got to meet this guy right so you steve you actually brought us together without knowing it uh and so i reached out to him and i you know very humbly said you know this i i'm not trained in the uh theravadan practices i'm you know just a humble zen person and uh you know would you teach me i'm asking for the teachings and he wrote back and said, yes, I would absolutely do that. And uh, I have trained in Zen, but I haven't completed my training. Would you teach me? And I, you know, we got on the, we got onto a video together and I think it was, you know, we were off and running from that moment. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, uh, Steve, in this relationship and that I, I do get contacted pretty much weekly by folks who are wanting to do some work and when I got Mark's uh, communication, I could really feel his sincerity and his humility. Uh, 
And so I wrote him immediately and we set up a call. And the fascinating thing from when we first got on the Zoom call together uh, and every time we connect since, it's like we have this shared whiteboard between our consciousnesses. Like we each have our own perspective, but there's this shared territory where we interact, where we work on koans together or other issues around teaching or uh, unfolding or awakening. So it's been a really interesting relationship in that regard. In the Zen tradition, they talk about the teacher-student certification being a mind-to-mind -mind seal. And when I was young and read about that, I was very impressed and thought that must be a very magical moment when that happens. It had never happened to me before. And so when Mark and I connected, we both commented on the call, this must be that mind-to-mind -mind seal thing that we've read about or heard about, or is legendary perhaps even. And, and so it just became obvious to us in terms of working together and just the bond we have and the level of friendship that we have. And yet we still assume the role of each other's teacher at times. And really that's part of what attracted me to working with Mark is that uh, most of the teachers that I'm close with are excellent teachers, but they're also clearly lifelong students. There's no sense of I'm done, I don't need to do any more. Quite the opposite. The more realized one becomes, the more of the mystery one perceives has yet to be discovered. That's fascinating. May, may it ever be so as well. <laughs> I'm curious about those initial meetings then. How did you set that up? Because that's quite something to navigate. You're both going to perform a teacher role Stephen with the heart meditations of, of the Theravada and Mark with the Zen training. Um, how did you, and, and you're, you're hitting it off as friends, it seems too. How did those initial meetings go? Did, uh, and, and, and what was the learning journey and the teaching journey perhaps fr from both sides? Well, it, it started that it became clear that we both were going to be students and teachers at different times. And so typically we arrange it where we'll have a particular call, like we'll have a call this week that'll be my um, Zen koan call. We'll work on some koans together. And then other calls will be where Mark works on the heart practices or I do some of the guided absolute meditations like I did on your program, the absolute peace meditation. Because what's one thing that's interesting, Steve, is I've worked with uh, several uh, Zen masters now who have wanted to explore the, the heart practices in, in particular. And I'll just say that when I was a young Zen student, there was a lot of emphasis on Zazen, on the meditation, but really no emphasis on the heart at all. Uh, there'd be talks on compassion, but there weren't any practices or anything we could do. So, so this is something that I see is being more and more introduced into the Zen world, the tradition in the West, is the heart practices. So anyway, we, we trade off on what we're doing when, and it's been really interesting. Like I say, working with the Zen masters, they're very steeped in what I call the unmanifest absolute. So the absence, emptiness, quality, peace stillness, those kinds of characteristics. But the other side, what I call the manifest side or function of the absolute is pure love and presence and pure awareness, which is direct awareness 
with no historical reference. And what I found was the manifest side was really where they needed to flesh out or fill out their realization. And so really focusing on that with them, I see that happening and not to you know, put words in Mark's mouth or talk about his experience, but I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the teachers become more rounded with that because that's really where the compassion ties in with wisdom when we have both the the manifest and unmanifest functioning let's say equally well then you've you've really got a a very potent teaching and you've got a really balanced humble grounded teacher in my view anything to add on that mark i'm just i'm smiling because i you know it is that for Steve and perhaps for the audience that, you know, Stephen and I um, often have sort of a communication. It's not even, it's not even verbal, you know, so I'm watching you uh, speak Stephen and I'm feeling uh, our connection, you know, and how strong, how strong that is, uh, which is quite remarkable. So I'm, I'm more, I guess I'm more of a felt sense uh, meditator teacher. Uh, so when I'm, when I'm feeling Steven kind of elevate his, uh, his energy in the way he just was, and I'm feeling it very directly and, uh, it doesn't have to be spoken. And, uh, so that's off. We don't just sit there and like, you know, elevate energies and we're talking to each other, but it, what, what's so comfortable and amazing about it for me is that we're moving in and out of. Uh, the various teachings and and examining them, turning them, you know, in different configurations and understanding them better because we're together, you know, because we are bringing this kind of more dynamic uh, function that I think no matter how, you know, realized one person is, and Stephen is quite a, you know, a very realized being, of course, um, that we also are in community. We also, you know, we're we're made to have relationship with each other and it's remarkable what happens when you can uh be with other people who on, on the same wavelength perhaps same level of understanding uh but in different ways and uh it's it's a beautiful thing i really am very grateful that we've been come together in this way i i'd say the other the other feature that i see is that coming from the backgrounds we do when we get to together the synergy is greater than just two individuals getting together there's definitely the absolute is always present and often functioning sometimes in ways that surprises us or ways that were at least were unexpected that's pretty common but like mark said we'll work with koans together um and where I'll, I'll present my answers and whatnot, and then we'll end up looking at them from different dimensions and from the lens of different teachings uh, within Buddhism to sort of understand what's being revealed and perhaps pointed to uh, on different levels. So I think it really helps both of our education. And at some point we'll be teaching together more. And so that's part of the synergy and uh, the shared probably perspective that we're developing and it's all live it's it's live communication it's not intellectualizing right i mean we we're we're, we're both well trained we can you know go to the source material and we can you know we can have an intellectual discussion about it but what's remarkable to me is that we're 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 experiencing it and feeling it in ways that are nonverbal 
in real time in ways that maybe we wouldn't if we were just separate. Um, right. There's a there's a there's a powerful presence uh, arising when we're doing this work together. So that's why. And so for me, in some ways, it's revitalizing the koans as well. That uh, working with Stephen is quite a, it's quite different from working with you know let's say a, a very beginning student where everything is intellectual. Um, you know, there's there's so much depth that can come out of uh, our interactions that, um, you know, I haven't frankly experienced working with anyone else before. So it's it's pretty cool stuff. It's very impressive to uh, established teachers with decades of practice and you know st also status in their own spheres coming together. It's impressive to me anyway. Uh, coming together into that sort of a, an exchange. Um, I think that's I think that's quite notable, quite remarkable. Uh, Mark, what was it about the heart practices that prompted you to look into Stephen, and you know what what was behind that? And I'm also curious a little bit about your experience as you started to get into those practices. Yeah. Oh gosh. Uh, I was about to go. I you know as a Zen guy, I was going to go right to the present experience. Of course, the history is a little I can reconstruct, but. Um, the present experience is a joyfulness. You know, there's a there's a, a wonder and amazement to this universe, um, and so what I find in the heart practice. There, uh, again, I could I can we have a little bit of time, and I can probably get into more detail about this. But uh, you know, the hara practice in Zen, you know, just you know, putting your your concentration just below the belly and belly button and uh, breathing from there is is wonderful for for focusing, um, and also it does reveal tremendous things about ourselves and the universe. Right, it's a very powerful practice. And I found that um, I was far from complete. I hope I'm never complete in my practice, but I I really I spent another when I finished koan study uh, in I don't know. 12, 15 years, I don't know, it's quite a few years ago now. Uh, I, I spent at least another decade really trying to open in different ways, uh, open the mind, open the body, open the heart. And the, the most difficult for me in many ways have, was the heart for whatever reason, you know, that I could intellectually grasp things and I can intuit things uh, through my, you know, just having, I suppose, uh, come into attunement with the, uh, with the absolute, but, but the heart is its own, you know, the heart is its own universe. And for some reason, I'd kind of gone from Ahara, you know, up here, you know, up into the stratosphere. And by coming back to the heart, uh, a joyfulness, you know, a, a sort of a happiness came that inside alone wasn't, wasn't creating, if that makes sense. And I felt like much more of a whole, a whole being after that. Um, and, and, you know, Stephen's approach is just, uh, and who Stephen is, it's not just, it's not just his approach, you know, what comes through this guy we're looking at is quite powerful. So I, I first couple of times we practiced, I was just, actually, I tried the, actually, I tried the, one of the methods that uh, he had, I think he had done the, the uh, one of the hard practices on your show. And so I, I, tried it and it was crazy uh powerful then i did it with him directly 
even more so. And, you know, and now it's my practice, right? So now I, you know, he, he revealed it to me mind to mind or real, revealed to me heart to heart, not in an intellectual way, but it was revealed between us, uh, you know, the absolute arising. And so it, it's a beautiful thing, you know, it's a, uh, and I still, you know, I go to work every day and I've got normal problems and I got all this stuff, but, uh, but I, I feel, you know, quite, quite better, quite different. Does that make sense? Yes. You can say also, Mark, if you recall the first few times we did it, it was a little bit of a blowout where we had to really plan on when uh, we could work (laughs) together on that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, these are some big experiences happening. So it was kind of a, it was, uh, it was kind of mind blowing in many ways. I couldn't, I couldn't go directly back to the office, but go back directly to work, put it that way. Um, you know, it, it, it took, well, one, yeah, I mean, it took oh, quite a while to come back to normal, um, quite a long time, whatever that means. What, what's this so, experience you're both pointing to here? What are you talking about? Sounds very interesting. <laughs> well, we did a practice. I I do these meditations I call guided meditations, and there's sort of a combination of guided meditation and sort of pith instruction on awakening. And also, I'm just describing in real time what's in this awareness and uh but by describing it in real time there seems to be a potency and so with mark uh we did some of the heart practices together and then i did a a guided meditation from the meditation i teach called innate goodness meditation uh up into the functioning aspect of the absolute which is pure love and pure presence and the combination of the pure love and pure presence that was manifesting was quite significant. Uh, I'm more accustomed to it. So to me, it wasn't too strong of an event. But Mark, it was, again, he was newer to the heart practices. And it really blew him out in a way that it did take him, I think, a few days to settle down where he could function more normally. And probably, I'd say a couple of months before it fully integrated. It was quite a while that the experience kept going. And then we would repeat that periodically because that's that balancing I'm seeing with the Zen masters again. And I'm not saying every every Zen master lacks the heart quality. I'm not saying that at all, but just the the manifest side of the absolute is less emphasized traditionally in Zen. So that's really what we're trying to do is balance that out. And also in the Theravadan, there isn't the the precision and the clarity of the Zen traditions understanding of awakening. So with this combination that we're, we're co-creating, it's really, which is just a function of the absolute. It's really something that's we're seeing has a lot of potency for students. I've done since we last met Steve, I've done two six day retreats uh, from my book, demystifying awakening. So awakening retreats and this may not be a pattern that repeats, but at both retreats, two of the members had awakenings, fairly significant awakenings, not just awakenings. So within six days, which is quite unusual time-wise, but there's something about the transmission that's happening 
of the absolute that seems to really impact people that are open in a particular way, that are particularly heart open. It seems to land pretty significantly with them. Yeah, it's been interesting because Stephen's uh, with with one of the students in particular. Stephen uh, asked me to, uh, I wouldn't say test him, but we we had a session together and sort of to get a sense of where his understanding was at. And he had this, he'd had quite a significant uh, opening awakening. Uh, so it was, so it's, it we started to realize that there's a lot of work, good work we can do together, and that would be beneficial for others and. And it just arises, seems to arise naturally between us. I don't know how to say it. It's just an interesting characteristic. But is that fair, Stephen? It's just kind of yeah, yeah. And and then around that time, it sort of became clear to us too that starting a dharma transmission process was the appropriate thing to do. As I was moving towards finishing the koan curriculum of formal koan study. It just became obvious to us that that was going to be, you know, we each were going to be teaching the other to be a teacher in that tradition. And so really, even though I practiced 30, 40 years in the Zen tradition, um, what I'm doing with Mark is really fine tuning how to be a Zen teacher, particularly working with koans, the intricacies and the normal places people will get stymied or slowed and how to be encouraging in the right places and how to uh, be some other way at other places. So it's really been a great education for me. I've enjoyed it a lot and I'm learning a tremendous amount. As am I, as am I. It's been really, uh, it's revitalized my practice as well in Zen. You know, what, there are so many, you know, there's so many levels and depths that one can go to. Um, the koans are not, they're not just dead stories, you know, that, that uh, the absolutes are rising through them. Uh, and the masters are present to us this very moment. And, uh, and so when you work with someone like Stephen, who has all of this understanding to begin with, and it's quite a powerful uh, connection, it, it, it's been just very interesting and fun. It's been really productive and really, really enjoyable, I think. At least for me, I've really enjoyed the the work. Now, I'm not going to say he never gets stuck in a coma either, right? I mean, he's he's not perfect. He's got a lot. He's got a lot. He's bringing. I'm teasing you, Stephen. But but the uh, but what all that's happening is that, uh, however, the koan may have been taught in the past or whatever you know, however we've may have worked at it before. What's arising with us is a is a hopefully a deeper understanding of it, and so. Uh, you know, there may be a traditional, we'll, we'll say these are the traditional answers. Some of the Zen schools are, have only, a, only one answer is allowable, for example, you know, to a particular line in a koan. You can only use this phrase or this gesture or you don't pass that line of it. Um, I, I wasn't trained that way in our school. We, we have, uh, or at least in the, the way Dido Roshi taught and certainly the way uh, Bernie Roshi taught, uh, they're looking at the whole, you know, I think uh, Dido used to say that the koan's a great meal and there are many courses to it and many elements to it and it's not static. So when, when working with Stephen, who's, you know, as I keep saying quite a, has a quite a profound understanding of reality, 
uh, you know, the elements that are available, you can you can go in any direction, and uh, and there'll be a very fruitful uh, meeting of the minds with it, which is what a koan is. It's a meeting of the minds between the teacher and student to the point where uh, there there is no teacher and student. The student becomes the teacher. The teacher becomes a student. These aren't, aren't just phrases that we use in Zen, but these are realities. You know, that the, the mind-to-mind transmission is quite a real thing. And uh, so I'm very lucky to have this incredible student, such as he is, and uh, and such a good friend. You know, one thing that's interesting, Steve, about the koans, I, I had worked koans start, starting probably in the 90s, but I'd work for a while and then take a break and come back with different teachers. And working with, with Mark, uh, I really had the experience with these koans of really sitting in the consciousness of each of the players in the koan. So understanding the student's mind and the student's position to the teacher and understanding the teacher's mind. What are they trying to point to? What are they trying to transmit or convey? Uh, and, And also looking at their words and gestures because there'll be a surface meaning to them, which is fairly apparent, but there's almost always something else that's being pointed to that is part of the mystery. So it's what's being pointed to. Some koans are we might say realization koans, they really spark the awakening and other koans are more refinement koans where they're, they're uh, smoothing a rough edge here and there. And some are more functioning koans, meaning how does the absolute function in different relationships? So there's really a lot to the koans in that regard, a lot of learning. But what I've particularly enjoyed is really getting to know these masters from inside, what they're like, what they're orienting towards. And some of them I don't know a lot of history about, but by understanding the koan, you can really get into and and rest in their mind and their awareness. So that's been just a really lovely and uh, amazing quality that's come forward with the koan work with Mark. Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with that. With how uh, there's a beauty, there's a beauty to it. You're, you're really, you start to feel, understand. On one hand, you know that we say there's this historical being, you know, uh, nonsense or you know any of the masters, and and so we're trying to get you know sort of get into their mind. But what's really happening is it's been the same mind always, right? There is only this one, and. And so someone is pointing out for us their understanding and experience of it. And when we can feel that in a very you know, intimate, subtle way, it's, it's, there aren't any words for what that's like. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's beauty itself. You know, it's, it's a, we use all these words in Zen, you know, the, the pearl beyond price, the jewel, you know, they're, they're only metaphors for, for what it's like to, experience um, you know the beauty of the universe they experience the subtlety of it there's a there's a there's a joy that arises in that and um, and these other human beings laid down their record for us uh, at some point you know whether it's uh, ancient China you know Japan the masters really 
in their kindness for us, you know, because it's very, there's kindness to this. There's, there is really heart sense, which is why I'm trying to also bring this back to the sense of the heart that no matter how difficult these paths are, particularly and Zen has a lot of long, you know, history of, um, you know, shouting and people get hit with sticks and you know, all these things, trying to get them to wake up. But at the end of it, even if you read Wang Bo, who's one of the, you know, viewed as one of the most severe of the great masters, uh, Wang Bo talks about the quiet joy. You know, it's, it, and I think as students, we often miss that part of it. We're looking at the dramatics, you know, which have come down from perhaps from people who uh, thought it was interesting or somehow distinguishing of this school. But what's, what's in the Zen school ultimately is the quiet joy available to everyone, always. Right? It's, it's always present. And to me, what Stephen and I are doing is we're just exploring that together. We're just doing things together, which bringing, bring forth our, it's not even we don't bring forth the quiet joy. The quiet joy is bringing us forth um, through our interactions. So. Yeah, and one, one of the things that, that's beneficial, which I'll tie in here, is, is the new book that's uh, being published that I believe this week called Trust and Awakening. And that's a book that I, um, it, it, there's an ancient poem called the first poem of Zen, the, if I'm saying it right, the Zing Zing Meng, uh, which is normally translated as faith in mind. And it's a book that someone like Mark, or people like Mark and I have used for decades. It's a resource in the Zen world where uh, I found it if I was maybe not stuck, but I could be stuck or I could be feel like I'm entering a new territory. I could look through the stanzas in that book and generally find one that was uh, speaking pretty well to where I found myself. And so it was kind of like a reminder of, oh, yeah, let's not forget this or that. And so I, I began going through it and sort of focusing the stanzas a little more particularly towards realizations that either I had witnessed in myself or others, but seemed to have some some ability to be to be repeated or that it was not an uncommon experience. So I changed some of the languaging. I, I, I call it that I reworked the poem. I just change the language a bit to sharpen the focus with each stanza to what I felt was being revealed. And then I offer commentary on each line of each stanza. So every line of the poem, I offer fairly short commentary, but trying to explain what that line is pointing towards or what possibilities it could be pointing towards. Because I wanted there to be a, a a more modern reference point to this wonderful poem and also putting it in language where if people wanted to practice today with that teachers like mark and i were available to support people in really pursuing that journey of our path from sort of ordinary human with a strong belief in the personality to the level of the absolute functioning beautifully as these individuals seamlessly working and moving through the world. So that's where that book arose out of. And, um, you know, Mark was kind enough to read it a number of times and 
offer his suggestions and clarifications. So I'm really happy with the book. It came out really well. And the other Zen teachers who have looked at it along with other Buddhist practitioners, including yourself, Steve, have found it to be of benefit and and pertinent to today's practitioner. Very much so, Stephen. I mean, it's it's when you first handed it to me, I'm like, oh my gosh, you're you know, we're going after like one of the this is one of the sacrosanct texts in the you know, and that and that some people may not like the notion of, you know, the very few, very few commentaries, nothing modern at all. Uh, and as I'm reading it, I thought, wow, this is exactly what's needed. It was it was terrific to begin with. Uh, it's come out beautifully. It's a, it's I mean, it's a great it's a great resource now. And it's showing that uh, the teachings are meant to be understood by us living right now. You know, it's not just a matter of uh, dusting off the text, no matter how profound it is, and kind of worshiping the old text. I mean, when you have a teacher like Stephen, who's who has had the experience and the and has the uh, skills to be able to provide a new translation and commentary, it's a big deal for all of us, and we should all be encouraged to do that to the extent that we're able to. You know, these things are if if these traditions, if Zen is not a live. Uh, experience and even experience isn't strong enough but you know if it isn't our life as we're living it then it, it what's the point you know it, it's it, we shouldn't be worshiping uh uh our ancestors as if they were different from us you know we're this is arising from the one being so i was real. so i'm so excited and i hope a lot of people will get this book and enjoy it and learn from it and realize for themselves what steven's pointing to Yes, very, very interesting indeed. I'm curious, Stephen, how did you approach, I don't know if it might be interesting to use an example of one of the quatrains, it's mostly in four line mm -hmm. stanzas, um, how you approach the uh, translation and reworking process with, with the commentary and the pointing questions and so on. Um, I wonder if we might go through an example and perhaps to give a sense of your process. Um, I, we certainly could pick any of the the uh, stanzas to look at. I, I don't actually recall kind of where they started, so I can't comment on that. Yeah, I've got one I think is, is worth talking about, and and this is the the fifth uh, stanza. So there's four lines on each of these. These lines are refrained from living in the world. Refrain from pursuing absence. Repose in harmonious love. Polarities gone. So with this stanza, this is an interesting one because what the first line, refrain from living in the world, is pointing to is not to view living in the world as the only reality. So it's not saying don't be a human in the world. It's saying refrain from living in the world, meaning as if it's the only reality. And conversely, the second line refrain from pursuing absence. So we also have to be clear that pursuing the idea of awakening or union of some sort with the absolute is a thing we need to get is a mistake as well 
because it's already here. It has to already be here because it's unconditioned. It's not created. It's not born, doesn't decay or die. So by recognizing we need to both not take this world as the only reality and we need to not pursue some idea, some concept, that already is advancing us. So repose in harmonious love, rest, recline, abide in a love that has a harmony. So the relationship of the everyday world to the transcendent world of the absolute, they're the same. This is all the absolute manifesting as presence in love. Everything we can see, everything we can come in contact with is all the manifestation of the absolute. It can't be anything else. And so the final line, polarity is gone. So anytime we're holding on to the polarities, as simple as I like those shoes, I don't like that shirt, we're identifying ourselves to ourselves based on our likes and dislikes. And that's a lot of the way we function in the world. Who do I like? Who do I not like? You know, all these ins and outs kind of thing. But once we realize these are just conceptual barriers, you know, um, you both have beards. I don't like beards. So automatically that puts me into a position and you into a position of relationship based on this one like or dislike. So once that gets put down, then we can be more openly with the natural flow of the absolute, the functioning, and really marvel at the majesty, the mystery, and the beauty of that manifestation. Every little thing, every little item we come in contact with, you know, a squirrel racing across a yard, um, a tree falling in the forest, all of these are beautiful manifestations of the absolute functioning in this conditioned world. So this is where these stanzas really can help. If you were someone who was really struggling about being in the world, am I in the world? Am I not in the world? You know, I really want to get awakened. I really want to be enlightened. Then we can see it's just another mental position and we can hopefully back down from that to be more in touch with what's authentically here without effort. And that's uh, in many ways the essence of Zen or Chan or the Tao, right? Which is, it's the, uh, in this line, it's repose, refrain from pursuing. You know, this is the thing we find the most difficult is we have to go get it. You know, we have to chase it. It can't be just what is. And we only really see that <laughs> we're already home when we let go of the polarities, as Stephen phrases it. It's, uh, it's the amazing thing is that in this, you know, the masters are already always telling us something that we could understand intuitively if we just turn inside for a moment and take a look at it, you know, and, and stop chasing. And uh, the way Stephen puts it, I, I mean, I really do love his, his new translations because uh, they're very contemporary. This isn't, this is a truth that's not even ancient because it's timeless. 
but his the way he phrases it and then his commentaries are very contemporary and I find them very accessible and hopefully students will find it that way as well. Direct pointing, direct pointing to the truth, as they say. So, yeah, Stephen, how would you have a student practice uh, practice with these uh, with this text? Well, if somebody was uh, motivated to practice with it um, directly, to me, I would I would like a koan take each line, mm -hmm. and I would hold each line turning it around like with a koan if i read a koan it's called a case then typically there's multiple sentences in each koan and one takes each sentence as its own its own mini koan within the koan so i would start with refrain from living in the world and i would look at that line what does refrain mean i mean i, I can understand the conceptual meaning but why is that word used that's a particular word. So part of it for me would be penetrating the these, we might call turning words in each sentence. Uh, and I would really want to understand that does it does refrain mean from living in the world mean, I reject the world, I don't want to live in the world, I want to go to a monastery, do I want to die? What's what, what does that really mean? And it's not saying don't live in the world. It's saying refrain. So that's where it gets interesting to me as you penetrate that. And just like a koan, each line has its own truth, it's revealing. And that's where with the commentary, I tried to really not put in anything extra. I did a lot of editing, taking out so it could be as, as streamlined and as, um, as much like a pith instruction, they call it in Tibetan Buddhism, something of direct teaching as possible. And again, like the third line here, repose in harmonious love. I didn't say rest. I didn't say any other word, repose. I mean, there's something about that that sounds like it's relaxing, and yet it's energetic. There's some poise about it. So why, why not just say rest in harmonious love forever? That sounds pretty great. But repose, there's a, a, it's kind of, there's a verb in there. There's action in there, and that's what I wanted to capture. And polarity's gone. They were never here to begin with. We're not actually getting rid of them. We're simply recognizing they're only held in place by concept and by re repetitive thought and orientation. Once those begin to be put down, even temporarily, we realize the magnificent freedom of moving in the world but not being of the world. And that gives us a great freedom to be with people authentically as a human, to have authentic emotion and relationship. At the same time, understanding it's all the functioning of the absolute. It always has been and always will be. So it orients us in the right way. So to me, that would be how I would, I would work with it. Um, and one could work with a teacher. I mean, either you or I could work with somebody going through these in that particular way. And that would be a very fruitful uh, practice. I think at some point we will be doing some retreats on, on these teachings as well. Yeah, I'll look forward to that. They're, um, yeah, they really are all, each line is, is a koan in itself and the whole collection is. So it, it's a very, it's a very rich practice. 
I was about to ask you to do another one, but well, we should let Steve, our host. Well, <laughs> funny you should say that, Mark. Funny you should say that. I was about to ask you to do another one as well. <laughs> it seems that the bearded contingency has spoken. The difference, Apparently of course, so. is that, the difference, of course, is that Mark's beard is, um, fashion is, is a you know statement where of uh, whereas my beard is is a is a sign of negligence. So these. Are the, uh, <laughs> Maybe it's the maybe it's the karma of living on a houseboat. <laughs> I think so. You know, one thing I wanted to say too that's in the book that I really liked was I had an artist do these lovely ink drawings of a lotus from fully closed to fully open, just staged throughout the book. And I just I really wanted that also to be a teaching that there was a visual representation too. And that's also what makes it so interesting to me. Ah, here's one. This is the the eighth stanza. Unbind thought and concept, roam openly. Inhabit the source, know all meaning. So we start with unbind thought and concept. I mean, again, the, the pivotal word here is unbind. So if it's bound, it's tied, it's secured, it's not moving, it's not going anywhere. So what happens if we let loose thought and concept? What if we have thoughts and we have concept, but we don't fully believe them as the most true reality? But then... Well, then they become advisory. They become perhaps interesting or useful, but not an identity, not such an allegiance that we forsake the mystery. The second line, roam openly. So if you don't have thought and concept of limitation, there is a roaming openly. There is a moving through the reality, through the absolute, either and the transcendent side, meaning entering into the absolute directly, or there's also roaming openly can mean functioning in the world as the absolute. You can go anywhere. You can have any kind of beard or no beard. You can fit in any place you go within reason. You can fit in anywhere you go because you're not stuck in a certain identity or a certain need to have people mirror a particular way of of being or personality to you you can be open and have that freedom the third line inhabit the source so not just know the source not not penetrate the absolute but let the absolute function as you inhabiting the source means let the absolute function as you it already is but what if we make it explicit what if by unbinding thought and concept and being willing to go anywhere, that's the secret to the absolute functioning as each of us in a deliberate knowing way? And the fourth line, know all meaning. It's understood by direct contact. And this is the pure awareness function of the manifest of the absolute, is pure awareness is contact, awareness contacts, but there's no historical reference. 
I make the joke that it's like people will say if they try a new meat, the common expression they'll say is, oh, it tastes like chicken or reminds me of chicken. Well, we're saying, what if it doesn't? What if you don't know what chicken tastes like? So you know all meaning by direct contact. You know what water is by sipping water. You know what an apple is by biting into an apple. So you know the reality of the function of it from the inside out. So the absolute recognizes itself. That's no all meaning. It doesn't mean you actually know everything, but everything is here. It's all contained within this moment. Water is wet, earth hard. I see no smells, tongue taste, the salt and sour. That's, uh, you know, we chant this in the, it, certainly in the U.S. monastery, the U.S. Uh, Zen centers and monasteries. You know, this is this is fundamental Chan practice, fundamentals Zen practice, uh, or Zen understanding. And uh, Stephen is able to, uh, you know, manifest as this as this guy who's my friend, and he's also able to go completely into the absolute and uh, and 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 live from this place and it's we all have it right it's accessible to all of us and it's the fruit of i mean i'm sorry steve i'm talking about you a little bit but it's the fruit of his devotion over 50 plus years you know his devotion to the absolute to to being the source to discovering that in himself and then you know then bringing it forth to others so it's it's not an you know it's, it's not an intellectual exercise that we're going through here. This is this is really from um, a very deep place, and it's available. I keep saying over and over, everyone has it. Everyone has it. We all are the source. So Stephen, in a very modern you know uh, text here, is just trying to bring it forth to everyone. Steve, what else would you like to? I can keep listening to this if you like. We can keep doing more. <laughs> I'm enjoying it thoroughly. <laughs> but we're, you know, we're kind of devotees, right? You know, you know, where if you get us on, we're going to be we're into this stuff. <laughs> uh, that's too funny. Gosh. Yeah, Rome it's marvelous. Openly. It's marvelous. Well, you know, the other thing that Fast would be interesting. Is reaching everywhere. Sorry, Steve. I, I think one thing also be interesting for the listeners and the viewers is also talking about the, the Zen transmission process that we're in too, sure. because that's, that's something that's referenced. But I know for myself in the Zen tradition, I knew almost nothing about it. It's not, it's not talked about that openly or transparently. Yeah, that's true. It's, uh, there's, it's not talked to, it's funny, but it's, it's probably like, uh, it's like a lot of organizations where if you ask, uh, how am I doing? Or you ask for advancement, that's the guarantees you that you're going to be put back to the, to the beginning. Um, so it's, it's really is rather mysterious in that way. Um, well, I mean, with, with Stephen, you know, in terms of, in terms of your transmission, it was obvious to me where you were, where you were coming from, from the, our first conversation in terms of your understanding and uh, all I'm doing really is just uh, helping you you know complete the some of the koans that you haven't done there are a couple of collections that we haven't finished you've done a tremendous amount already 
before we even met. Um, and then what we're getting into are uh, things that are more part of the, either we would say in the oral tradition or mind to mind, you know, things that are not, not really written down, but they're transmitted from the teachers, you know, down the line. And so we're, what we're, we're doing now is we're, we're starting to role play uh, in teaching the koans. So uh, we'll take, we'll take a case, uh, you know, we'll go through it where Stephen is the student and, uh, you know, my job is to stick him if I can on some things, you know, just to show, we say that that's, that's meant in, you know, in a lighthearted way, but what we're trying to do is look at the, all the aspects, you know, if you come at this, uh, you know, in Zen, we often uh, will look at koans from the, the point of view of the five ranks of Master Tozan, and it's all which have to do with the relationship of relative and absolute. And so we may look at the koans through, you know, several different lenses, different positions, you might say. And then we'll, we'll reverse, and I'm going to be the student. And I'm going to try to do my best to come come back with, you know, being a stuck student who's stuck and not understanding and not getting it or trying to sneak an answer past him. Something that may be an intellectual answer, uh, but it's not, you know, it, what's not resonating is the is the sense of understanding that has to be there. And there's, you know, I mean, we all I shouldn't say everyone, but I certainly spent many, many years uh, trying to answer koans that I didn't understand. Uh, I mean, I had a partial understanding, but I. You know, you're trying to, you just want to get it done. It's the, one of the problems is a sense of the koans become this mountain you're trying to climb. And the thing about it, 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 once you've gone through it is it's just your life, right? It's, 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 it's not, it's not a game we're playing. It's an opportunity to delve really deeply into what we all are. And so it's, it's a joy for me to be, uh, both the, the teacher and the student, I, th I think Stephen's enjoying it as well. You know that we're going, we're we're communicating things that are. I, if I if I told you the things we're doing specifically, I'd probably violate some code. You know, there's, there's revealing things you don't talk about too openly. It'll 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 mislead students who are along the way. The things that Stephen and I are doing are just specific to our relationship. But you know, one thing I would say is anyone who is studying in the Zen tradition or the Chan tradition that. Um, Ultimately, all the all the teachers trying to do is to get you to see your own true nature. You know, there's no the answers, while they may be important, pale compared to the the sense of ease. And uh, we had just had one, the one we were just looking at, which was uh, you know the repose, the sense of the sense of repose that we get from just turning inside and looking at. Uh, the love that's there, looking at the vastness of this of this body mind that we inhabit together, um, allowing the polarities to be gone. That's what that's what teachers are looking for. They're not, you know, they're not necessarily. Maybe they're looking for you to use the word repose. I mean, that does happen, but certainly not in our in our lineage. We're looking for that understanding, that heart mind. I'm not sure if that's answering at all, Steve. What you're asking, but. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting also in the koan work, and really probably the more challenging aspect of answering koans, is that it isn't just that you provide an answer to your teacher, because what they follow up with when you give an answer is, okay, show me. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's like, sh show you? 
you know, how do I demonstrate this? How do I demonstrate the absolute functioning in this particular place? So, but in order to be able to show it or demonstrate it, you have to have a deep understanding, a deep realization of what the koan is pointing toward, what it's revealing. And that has to be so ingrained in your experience, your realization, that you can show it four and five different ways, if asked. Yes. And, and in some of the early koans, it is. You know, the, one of the famous early koans is the koan Mu. The, in Buddhism, it's understood that all sentient beings have the ability to awaken in their own way and become, become Buddhas. So they have their Buddha nature. And understanding that, again, all beings have Buddha nature, a student who's, in my view, abiding in the absence, the emptiness quality of the absolute, is feeling that and saying, does a dog have Buddha nature to this great master Joshu? And Joshu says, Mu. And originally in Chinese, it was, I think, Wei, which means no or nothing. So he's saying nothing. So he's taking away this idea of Buddha nature, this idea of realization, and and he's pointing the student toward the absence because that's where the student is positioned. So it becomes this wonderful koan that we can enter into the absolute and journey with it. And when one feels Mu is complete, the teacher will ask something like, how old is Mu? How tall is Mu? So they're clarifying questions and it's like, what? How tall? And so it really puts one into that position of bringing the absolute into functionality of everyday world. We have to find the reality both in the transcendent, but also in the everyday. That's what makes his koan so pertinent and powerful to me. Alive. 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 Yeah, I was going to... Uh... Maybe that's the capping phrase on it. Sorry, I wasn't trying to correct you, but just saying it's, you know, it's the aliveness. Yeah. As Daita Roshi used to say, uh, I'll do the Daita Roshi that I, he was so kind actually in, in Doksan and uh, always, but he was, a, he was a tough guy and he would go, don't tell me, show me, you know, and like, that's the Zen master, you know. Uh, because all he's trying to do in his kindness is to shock somebody out of using, you know, giving a, uh, uh, an answer that is, uh, as he would say, linear and sequential, right? It's, it's coming from reasoning and trying to elicit something that's a direct experience. How does it feel when that shout happens? <gasps> or you forget the thoughts. It's not cruelty. It's not, he's not being mean. He's just trying to say, wake up. What's your life right now? Don't tell me about the past or the future. What is it right now? It's okay then to say, I'm having a wonderful morning. I'm getting to talk to Steve and Steven. You know, it's joyful. I mean, this is a beautiful thing to have this conversation together. And yet to get lost in those words, if there was just the words, let's say if I go on and on about it, rather than just staying with the feeling, the sense of this, you know, repose that we have, this harmonious love that we're in. I can kill it, you know, I can destroy it by talking too much about it. So we're always in this balance of not playing a game with this, 
it's not trying to sound cool. It's like, how are you actually feeling in this moment? What are you actually seeing? What are you tasting? What's the touch? It's, it's at some point miraculous beyond words. And we don't want to leave the students in the talking. We want them to discover the miraculous. Which being Zen is no more than no other than just this conversation we're having right now. Yeah, you can see, you can see the absolute. You can see the stars and the moon. You can see many things happen. Ken shows openings, awakenings. But ultimately, this is our life right now. We all have it. Just this moment. That's the koan. Sorry, man. Go ahead. I was going to say, and the beauty is that everything's always in this moment. Yeah. So we don't need to go anywhere else. It's always here. And, and this is yeah. really leading, Steve, to the development of teaching that we're going to be doing. We're starting to do where, again, and, and this ties into we're just starting to fundraise to see if there's enough interest in purchasing and developing a, a meditation center to really be focusing on these teachings which would be a combination of being deeply rooted in the heart practices. And as you know from my book, Buddha's Heart, the heart practices can be done on a transformational basis, meaning we work through category of beings. We work through beings who are easy, uh, other ones that are challenging, people like benefactors and, um, and others. And that helps us recognize and come into contact with both our own emotional and heart wounding, but also the armoring that we've overlaid to protect ourselves. So as we work these different groups, we begin to heal some of this wounding that we carry and put down some of the armoring. Again, that's there for defense, for protection. And so we get to be more and more open-hearted. And one of the lines I have in the book, Buddha's Heart, that was a surprise to me was the more authentically vulnerable I was in my life, the safer I was. Because I was willing to be so open, nothing could seem to land. When, when you're willing to be wounded, not looking to be wounded, but willing, then it's like everything becomes available to you, that freedom. And so for us, that the teaching is going to start there with the heart practices, both in terms of the transformational and then the transcendent. Each, each of the heart practices we call Brahma-viharas or divine abodes in Theravadan Buddhism, we can penetrate deeply enough to have an experience called jhana, which is a third level of concentration meditation or absorption where we lose all sense of self and our, our awareness and our consciousness merge into that heart quality of true nature or heart quality of the absolute. We penetrate into compassion to such a deep level that we are compassion. And then we can begin to function more and more as compassion, objective, universal compassion not personal compassion that's dependent upon relationship. It naturally arises. And then coupling with that is the awakening practices, both the silent illumination meditation, shikantaza, of opening more and more to putting down the concepts, the dividers 
of body-mind, inside-outside, to where we're just awareness and consciousness are steeping in the vastness of the Absolute. And the other practice that we can support is the koan practice. Using these words of these ancient masters, these living words, to penetrate. One of my old teachers used to say, to understand a koan, you've got to chew it up and shit it out. But the point is, you need to make it yours. You have to enter into it in a way that you're in each position, each person in the koan is you. Then you understand, then you're touched on a very deep level with these koans. And it can lead to realization, awakening, and the maturing and embodying and functioning of that realization. So th this is where pursuing a retreat center would let us teach regularly, offer retreats monthly, where we could really have people come through to do some very deep work. And also Mark and I are really looking to the next generation of teachers. We wanna really be able in a few years to start selecting and training some teachers who will be thoroughly trained in all these practices and deeply realize themselves so they can manifest and allow the absolute to function in them as them in teaching and supporting this work. And that's the Buddha's Heart Meditation Center. Do you have a sense of where that will be? Do you have a property in mind or have you got, got something already? Well, I've been looking around at different properties and I'm going next week to look at a property in Georgia that has a lot of potential. And um, so I'm hoping from the from visiting and seeing it can be either confirmed as a real viable property or eliminated. Uh, my hunch is it's probably going to be pretty viable. And so then it's just a matter of raising the money, figuring out what's needed to make it a viable center. And it'll be small. I mean, nothing we'll be doing will be large. So it'll be each retreat will be have an intimacy to it for that reason and have a certain level of comfort and more ease. Uh, for example, one of the main complaints of retreat centers is there's insufficient bathrooms and showers. And so one of the things that we want to do is have enough that there's at least um, enough bathrooms to where people may have to share with one other person, but not 10 other people. So it becomes a lot more functional. And, and as there's a lot of practitioners of Mark's and my generation that are our age, well, you know, we're getting old enough where we need a little more access to bathrooms at different times, and we have a little different physical needs. So it becomes important to maintain a practice place that also is sensitive to people's health and comfort too. Is this a place where presumably you won't both live there full time? What, what will this, what will it be in that sense? Um, I, I'm planning to live there full time. My wife and I would move there and then Mark would be there um, as often as is possible. Uh, he'll be transitioning over the coming years into teaching more full time. So we'll just see as that develops. But the idea would be that there would be a certain amount of staff and retreats. I'm anticipating there would be some also long-term retreatants or residents who are there and want to commit to being there three months, 12 months, several years to practice daily with the teachers and to uh, be a part of the, the process of 
supporting other people's retreats as well as deepening their own practice as well. So I, I think it will be, it, it's, the, the model is that it can be economically viable, it can support itself, sustain itself. And, and again, this is really a labor of love for the next generation. Mark and I really want to be able to offer these teachings in a place that we can really maintain a certain um, atmosphere and quality and orientation that will be supportive and for people to both open their hearts and awaken to becoming fully functioning beings in the world. So I would be there. And then again, another aspect that's an important aspect is chain, training the next generation of teachers to continue these teachings, to maintain the realizations and maintain the teachings. And it's looking like that's going to be developing. We have some folks who are coming along that look like they'll, they could be potential teachers down the line. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about that do you have any candidates in mind and what are the sorts of qualities that you're noticing and uh and how do you intend to train them what, what would the program be for for those candidates that's yeah, a big question R really it's it's a question a couple of things one is of realization there needs to be a deep enough realization that they can anchor the teachings in that realization and and then can they function from it less and less from personality um, when i was young in the zen tradition there were a number of teachers who had had initial awakenings but they hadn't proceeded much beyond that so there was a lot of uh, the absence the emptiness in their realization but there wasn't much of the love and presence so consequently, there, would, there wasn't as much compassion in their teaching as there needed to be. And it would come off as harsh or sometimes brutal. So that's part of it is really understanding this, this is a more mature world that we live in as Buddhists and spiritual practitioners, where we need to take into account the whole person as we're practicing and sustainability because most of us do live in the world and we have had jobs and careers and families. So we need to understand that influence, that contribution. But but the training would be, it's recognizing people both based on realization and also the same way that Mark and I realized the mind-to-mind -mind seal. That's something else that Mark and I would be sensitive to when we're starting to feel that in a student, that may be an indicator. But there's lots of components that go into being a teacher and there's there's just how someone lives what choices they make um, there's been problems in the past in in all religions and buddhism is included around relationship and financial issues so the teachers still had issues around um, relationship sexuality and managing money where it got to be problematic and some of that was the student's responsibility in that day. I know that I idealized my teachers to an absurd degree. I thought they were living Buddhas and everything they did was enlightened action, even if they were doing things that on the surface looked to be harm. So investing someone with that much authority is also a mistake. The students have responsibility to understand their teachers are human. 
we're still functioning in the world. We're not, we're not perfect beings. The realization, the absolute is perfect, but we're coming through a conditioned expression, this human who's had these experiences. So, you know, that, that's part of the maturity of it. And then it's developing, really letting them understand why we teach the way we do. What are we looking for? How do we support people in all these different ways? And equally important, who can't we serve? Who needs to spend time on therapy or time in some other modality before they do the deep work? In other words, you know, whose ego structure needs more shoring up? People that have had very severe trauma can often need some trauma therapy before they do deep work. You wouldn't want to take them into some of the deep koans and try and take away the sense of personhood. That would be so destabilizing to some of those folks, they could be really damaged. So a lot of it's understanding modern reality and also the effects of modern psychology, where we're not psychologists or therapists, but we have a sensitivity to the psychology. And Mark and I have both seen what happens if people who aren't really in a balanced place can get pushed too far. It can be it can be at least upsetting, if not damaging. So part of it is instilling that sensitivity and taking a long time to, to really bring them along as teachers. There's a maturing process in being a teacher. And for us to turn somebody loose as an independent teacher, they would really have to know it well. We'd have to really be able to be clear about their realization, their functioning, and also the places where they might get snagged. So my view on any teachers we authorize, I've got some folks I'm training to teach the Buddha's heart material, and they'll be specifically authorized. They're not going to be given carte blanche to just teach anything and do any kind of work because it takes time to learn to be a teacher and to see whether you're going to have issues. So my hope is that we will be able to both be a host to the students who want to come and open to realization, awakening uh, heart and, you know, deeper realization to the absolute, but also, again, training others to support. You know, so as Mark and I get older, there'll be a way to pass on the teachings, pass the baton to a generation that can anchor it in a way that we're, we're really happy about. I would just add that anyone who's going to teach needs to remain a student, you know, forever. I mean, in the, in the really deep sense. Yeah, that, that's it's, critical. Yeah, it's, yeah. And that's really what invites the humility, the authentic humility, is I don't know everything. Uh, I'll never know everything, you know, but I'm here to help if I can. I mean, that's really the orientation. Yes. And there's a joy in that, continuing to be a student, that it doesn't become just a job. You know, you're teaching out of I don't know, some motivation that's not the joy of what this life is and what this work is that we do together. So uh, simple criteria, probably not something you can put on an exam, but uh, <laughs> you know it when you see it. Yeah.
Yeah, that's very interesting. You're bringing up a lot of the, uh, uh, I suppose, conundra. Is that a thing? Um, yeah, conundra. Yeah. <laughs> it's proper. Yeah, uh, that's a. Uh, I think it's the correct ending. Yeah, Latin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, of training teachers, um, and I think that's interesting that the modular approach is a way of giving a certain amount of. Uh, I suppose, leeway for someone to gain experience teaching a certain thing. By modular, I mean, we're going to certify you in a Buddhist heart approach or authorize you, however you want to say, in Buddhist heart um, material only. And uh, that way, the person, I suppose, can teach a little, uh, but still be in, in a close training relationship. Um, they're not just suddenly turfed out with the full, the full authorization. Is that a modular approach something that you expect to pursue depending on the students' interests or their particular uh, leanings? My, my view would be that everyone would do the Buddhist heart end of the work first. Like next year I'm offering and Mark and I will be offering uh, a couple of mentoring programs. First six months will be Buddhist heart, the heart practices, and the second six months will be the demystifying awakening and trust and awakening material. And so we'll do it in a very specific way. And that's how the teachers will be trained as well, be doing the Buddhist heart material. Like the first folks I'm going to authorize to teach, even to give evening talks and do up to a one day retreat. And, and they, they won't be authorized to do one on ones or anything longer than that. And it takes time even to learn to do that really well, to learn what you don't know, to again, be a student as a teacher, to recognize, well, I, I need some development in this area myself. Uh, I'm getting snagged or triggered by students when they bring up these issues. So it's really an ongoing process, as Mark is saying. But to me, it would be really, um, it would be really to be steeped in the Buddhist heart material, and then at least the silent illumination practice, where there would need to be realization on that level. Um, I'm, I'd like it if there were folks who also did the koan koan curriculum mark and i are working on coming up with a collection of koans probably a few hundred that are part of a subset of the of the traditional formal koan curriculum and by coming up the subset it would really be what koans that relate more specifically to the heart practices and a realization in terms of um entering into the mystery and functioning as the mystery. So there's, I'm being a little vague about it, but we're trying to come up with koans that will really be inclusive of what we're teaching overall, and will give a very well-rounded uh, realization practice territory for students and, and uh, those who might be on a teaching path. You have anything to add on that, Mark? Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess I was going to say that I, you know, I came up through um, the White Plum lineage, Maizumi Roshi, and there there were a huge number of koans that are included in that tradition, uh, which includes both, you know, as they say, both uh, uh, Rinzai and Soto school uh, collections, and it's a very, it's a, it's a long it's a long path. I mean, one studies decades to get through those koans and they're all useful, but I, there, there are some approaches to the koans that are perhaps 
better aligned with the kind of hard practice work that we're talking about rather than just trying to, you know, we, one wouldn't have the time in, in, a, in a lifetime to be able to do that vast koan co collection and to do the hard practices, which, you know, we both believe so firmly in. So we're, we're shaping it. We, we're not going to, the one thing I will say is that we're not going to use the koans in a way that would diminish uh, the power that they have and the importance that they have in the lineage. You know, to the extent that any uh, anyone else in the White Plum is listening to this, uh, you know, I personally take the cons very seriously. And so I know Stephen does their, their uh, very transformative and, and vital to, you can't say you're a Zen teacher in our in the White Plum without at least having accounted for the, the importance of the, that, that lineage. At the same time, I think we're we're trying to do something that's contemporary, and so we're going to try to um, pick those pick those approaches that we think will be most helpful to students today. That's a maybe, maybe way to summarize it, with giving you know serious respect to the to the tradition that we've come up through. You can tell it's a little bit of a delicate business because we don't want to be. Uh, I certainly don't want. Uh, you know, my teachers coming back uh, from the beyond upset. So <laughs> we've, we've diminished the teaching in some way. Yeah, we, I, I, you know, we, we have tremendous that. respect for the koan curriculum and the presentation. And it, it's, it's just a matter of what's, what's kind of most supportive in that respect is what we're looking at. So it's yeah. done with complete sincerity and respect for the tradition and the practices because they're really incredible even yeah. in today's world. Yeah. I, I Book of Equanimity, case two. Attention, Emperor Wu asked the great master Bodhidharma, what is the ultimate meaning of the holy truth of Buddhism? Bodhidharma replied, vast emptiness, no holiness. The emperor asked, who stands before me? Bodhidharma replied, I don't know. The emperor was baffled. Thereafter, Bodhidharma crossed the river, arrived at Shorin, and faced the wall for nine years. Now they say that's the traditional beginning, you know, of the, uh, of the Zen tradition. And uh, we very much respect that. One could just do that koan for the rest of one's life and have a treasure, a great treasure, and a very rich existence. So I, I want to at least put that out there. You know, that this is this is about reality. It's not uh, it's not a game that we're playing. It's it's our life. It's and what one one could work the I don't know, probably end, endlessly for a lifetime and still never fully penetrate. Not knowing is most intimate, is, as Maizumi Roshi once or often said, most intimate. I think that's what we're after is the intimacy of, of this experience of life and, mm -hmm. and helping to transmit that to others who can see it for themselves, since we all have it. Well, and, we and also really, really acknowledging the, sleep, the seamlessness of engagement in spiritual practice and realization. 
Mm. It's it's never ending. We're always picking it up. We're always living right here. And yeah. this moment is the only moment there is. So everything is here. Yeah, for those who doubt, right? Just look inside. If you think life is not precious, you know, look at this very moment. It's a beautiful gift we've been given. Use it and, well. And in, in terms of practicing with us also, Steve, as I mentioned, uh, you mentioned we're doing some fundraising for a center. I, I do teach presently at Cloud Mountain Retreat Center here in the States. And I'll be doing four retreats next year. Uh, one, one will be on awakening, one will be on the absolute, and two will be on the heart practices, Brahma Viharas. And I'll also be in Croatia for two weeks in April, the 2nd to the 16th, teaching one week of concentration practice, which can lead to absorption or jhana. And the second week will be awakening. And it's going to be a very potent retreat. The folks that have signed up, I know a number of them. and. They're people who I would I told told Mark they're extremely ripe, so it's going to be a very interesting retreat. And we've got about five more spots open, so if any of the listeners are interested in getting into retreat with us and uh, rolling up their sleeves, um, they can look at my website awakeningdharma.org and uh, read about that retreat if that's of interest. That does sound good, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that Croatia retreat does something good. I'm rather tempted myself. But um, well, it's, yeah, a, it's a great location too, right? Right on the Adriatic, and best retreat food I've ever had. We had this amazing cook from Croatia who just made wonderful, wonderful food. Is that something that you hinted at it a little bit there, um, with your homage to the Zen tradition and its lineage and so on? Is 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 uh, should we say the politics? of institutions and organizations, something that you're uh, taking into account um, and um, navigating in, in this new venture and, and the way in which you're both seem sort of creatively, uh, you know, recombining and uh, these different elements from both of your trainings. Well, it's an interesting question. In Buddhism, like in other religions and other aspects of the world, we have people who are uh, very oriented to the tradition and wanting to preserve the tradition in whatever way that is meaningful to them, meaning what they think the, the tradition is or stands for. And others uh, are a little more oriented towards innovation, towards how does this work today? How can I make this more relevant to practitioners today? And so I see what we're doing is straddling that line. We're wanting to maintain and respect tradition. At the same time, we're trying to find applications and presentations that are more relevant to today's practitioner, and particularly Western practitioners, since that's predominantly who we're working with. So what does that look like? And again, how do we balance that? I, I know the traditionalists in both the Theravadan and the Zen world would probably not be overjoyed at what we're doing because we're combining these things that aren't traditionally combined. And, and yet at the same time, it's all the functioning of the absolute. So it isn't like we're inventing something that didn't already exist. We're just really looking for the direct relevancy of it to today's practitioner. Uh, 
And that's really, and it's how the absolute's functioning and marketized. So it makes sense that we would present it in that way. But th there will be people, there are people who would have some resistance uh, to what we're doing. Some of the Theravadans wouldn't like me combining the Zen practices with the Theravadan. And, um, you know, that's just how they're going to look at it. I hope they'll look at the effect and the benefit to people of doing what we're doing. And we're not changing it. We're just organizing them in a little different way. It, what what I teach is exactly what I learned from my teacher. So, you know, that's that's part of the preservation aspect of Buddhism as well. Yeah, I'll just add that I have great reverence for the tradition that I was trained in and for my teachers and for the members of the Sanghas that I trained with. They were all my teachers. So um, we're not changing anything. We're just trying to bring it forward in a way that, that may be helpful for others. That's all. No politics intended and hopefully will be avoided forever. You know, there's no need for it. I wish you both the best of luck in that. Stephen Snyder and Mark Moonberg, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Th thank you, Steve. Wonderful being with you again. Be well. Blessing. Many blessings to you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.